Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at the second part of the Sandman story arc, The Doll's House. Second season of Dollhouse. Things get a lot stranger. Romo Lampkin becomes involved somehow. <laughs> Right, so where last we left the Sandman, there had been an episode that took place ten years in the future in which wiping technology... Yeah. Yeah. Got real weird. I mean, it was a weird show to begin with, but... And this is a weird comic book. It's not a perfect adaptation, but it's pretty close. <laughs> Alright, this is Sandman issues number 14 through 16. They're written by Neil Gaiman. And at number 14, the art is by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And the cover is by Dave McKeon. We've got kind of a grinning face with teeth in its eye sockets, and it's surrounded by scraps of a U.S. map. Yeah, that's the Corinthian. Yeah, this is obviously the face of the Corinthian. He's happy. He's smiling. He's smiling times three. It's a triple smile. Okay, so can we talk about page one of this comic book? Well, let's talk about what happened previously, because we had taken a long break, 600 what? years to be specific. Why don't you do that while I take a short nap? Okay. Uh, serial killers were gathering at a motel in Dodge County, Georgia, where by coincidence Rose Walker and the enigmatic Gilbert had suffered a car breakdown while looking for Rose's brother Jed, who escaped from his foster parents' house after Morpheus more or less, you know, blew up his foster parents. Jed was found by the Corinthian, who's on his way to the serial killers' convention, and he's, he really is taking a nap right now. It's pretty irritating to me. It really makes me feel like he doesn't value my contribution. Hey! Oh. <laughs> page one! Okay, page one of this comic book. I like how it says, Serial Convention. That's a pun on serial killer. Yeah, well, it's spelled as if it were a kind of grain. Right, right, like, like breakfasts. Yeah, and we have some narration explaining that the serial killers are gathering as if blown by the wind. And as we go into the hotel and see the people who are gathering, the dialogue on this page is full of death puns. The journey was a real killer. I could murder a steak. I could have died! Yeah, but the thing is, in Hellblazer, John Constantine Hellblazer, yes. anytime anyone wants to eat anything, they say that they could murder it. So, like... That one doesn't really stand out. Yeah, it's something of a Britishism, and these are mostly the American Murderers? The American Murderers Association. Yeah, I have their first album. Oh. I want to note, too, that on this page, the sun is rising. We see a lot of stories that take place between or around sunrise and sunset. Oh, yeah, Neil Gaiman likes doing that. So, there's a large gentleman well he's not a gentleman he's a serial killer but there's a large guy a uh, rotund man yeah with sort of cat ears on on a hat that he's wearing right and he is at the sign-in table and he's saying well no it's not him it's uh, nimrod who is saying that somebody named the family man who was to be the guest of honor has not shown up Right. Also, we uh, get another reference to the fact that there's a Kentucky Devil and an Oregon Devil. Yeah. Which we saw previously on the registration list in part one. Yeah, that's kind of amusing. The guy running the registration, the Rotund Fellow, is, we will soon learn, Funland. And Mr. Nimrod is a short, nebbishy guy with glasses and a mustache. 
They actually both have mustaches. And, oh, you're right. And no beard. Neil Gaiman must be of the opinion that... Um, <laughs> that Unfashionable facial hair goes hand in hand with serial murder. Yeah, hair. mustaches. Yeah. Yeah, I want to throw out another note here. The family man is not going to make it to this convention because he's busy fighting John Constantine in the pages of Hellblazer issues 24 through 30 right now. Oh, well, that is good to know. I actually wondered if that was something... Uh, if the fate of the family man was something that had been told to us in some kind of clever roundabout way somewhere in this story arc, mm-hmm. and I just missed it. But, no, apparently you have to be significantly further ahead in Hellblazer than we are now to know about the family guy. Yeah, they're not quite lucky synced there's up. a family guy. Or we're not quite synced up. <laughs> I don't think it's lucky that there's this family guy. <laughs> well, it's lucky that John Constantine is taking care of him. Yeah. Although, knowing John Constantine... I haven't read the story arc yet, but he's probably not doing a very good job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Nimrod goes to talk to a guy who's apparently the manager of the hotel, although he might also be a serial killer. Anyway, he explains that there are, unfortunately, two guests left in the hotel. What makes you think he might be a serial killer? Well, he's reading Bondage Time magazine, which is the Time magazine of bondage. (laughs) Apparently. That's a prestige publication. Yeah, it's, well, prestige is relative. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to cast aspersions on anybody's. It's uh, less prestigious than Time Magazine, but more prestigious than Bondage Week Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm not going to cast aspersions on anybody's thing, but I would think maybe in 1989, having somebody read that was an indication that they were a serial killer. Oh, okay. So that's maybe this may be a hint. Yeah, he's also wearing a cowboy hat and and cowboy boots, which he lives in Georgia, so that might just be the way he dresses. It might also indicate that he's traveled from somewhere and therefore is a convention attendee. Ah, I see. Right. Well, so he tells Mr. Nimrod that although the convention was supposed to have the entire hotel, there are still two guests who cannot leave because they've been asked by the police to stay put. Right, and because the police have talked to Rose, they can't interfere with her. They don't want any police trouble. Right. These are, of course, Rose and Gilbert. Yes. And we cut to Rose, who is depressed. She had really been looking forward to the pride she was going to feel when she had successfully tracked down Jed. And when she called ahead to Barnaby and Clarice's house, it had blown up and Jed had gone missing. Right. As we saw in Sandman issue number 12. Right, Barnaby and Clarice are relatives of their father and were total rat bastards who mistreated Jed and really, I don't even care that they exploded. They made him live in an unfinished basement. Yeah. Right, so G.K. Chesterton here starts to tell Rose a story, but she doesn't want to hear it. Finally, he uh, manages to talk her into hearing a story on the condition That it's an old fairy tale. Right. She says, If I hear another of your theological paradoxes, I'll scream. Frankly, today I don't care if God exists or not. To which Gilbert says, I doubt he feels likewise, Miss Walker. This is also the first time I noticed that he says whom, Mm. which I have no idea what that means, but it's it's a common utterance of Gilbert's. Yeah, I think it's sort of a sound that he makes. Hmm. Something like that. That's my guess. Yeah, in Batman right now, I think across all the Batman titles, no matter who the the writer is, they've got him saying, 
<laughs> a lot. Uh, it's, it's, really right. kind of, it's really kind of random. I also want to point out on this page, as Rose is depressed alone in her room, the panels are all structured to make the hotel room look vast and empty, sort of emphasizing her loneliness and her sense of being overwhelmed. And then when she goes to talk to Gilbert in his room, the shots are much tighter and more full of stuff. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Even this sort of far away shot of them where they're silhouetted against the window and we see both of them in the same panel sort of makes them look like they take up the whole room because they're dominating the, the sort of landscape of the window. Yeah, it's a cool effect. So Gilbert tells her a story. He tells her the original version of Red Riding Hood. Yeah, in this one, the wolf serves up grandma as meat and wine for the girl. Yeah, and when she eats it, the cat calls her a slut. Right, slut-shamed by a cat, which is really harsh. Where'd that fucking cat come from, anyway? Yeah, what the, who the fuck are you? <laughs> so, um... And the, the wolf also has Little Red Riding Hood take off her clothing one article at a time and burn it all in the fire with the line, You won't be needing it again. Right, so she has to get naked to get in bed with Grandma, and then... Uh, and then, of course, at the end of this version of the story, the wolf eats her up. Yeah, Rose says, Gilbert, that's horrible. I'm afraid so. There are earlier versions that are even worse. So it seems like we kind of caught Gilbert here, since he said he was telling the original version of the story. And then when he's done, he says that there are earlier versions. Yeah, that's a good point. He said it was an original version. Oh! You know what? You're right. He does say an original version, not the original version. Should probably also be noted that... You getting your articles straight. (laughs) It should probably also be noted that, like, there's probably an original version that was written by a person and an original version that existed in the dreaming. Oh. And they're not exactly the same. Right. That's right. Dream is the, the lord of all things that aren't true. Right. Also, I just want to point out that these are some scary-ass wolves that have been drawn here, courtesy of Dringenberg and Jones. Yes, and they look absolutely like wolves. She should not have been fooled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, for safety's sake, Gilbert urges Rose to keep to her room. So, yeah, now we see the Corinthian, and he is dressed real fucking stupid. He looks like... The middle-aged owner of, like, a tire place. <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> There's no reason to disparage middle-aged tire place owners like that. If they dress like this, <laughs> there is. I think that this was intended at the time to look sort of rakish. Yeah, it, it might have looked rakish in the 80s. I also think he's supposed to have uncharacteristically white hair. Like, he's not actually supposed to be old. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's fair. Isn't a Corinthian like a word that means a rake? Yeah. Anyway? Well, in any case, yeah, I don't know. He looks very people of Walmart to me. But, <laughs> okay. So Nimrod is being assisted by Funland, and I should point out in this panel that Funland is literally wearing the big bad wolf on his t-shirt. Yeah, that's true. And when Nimrod calls him Fun, Funland corrects him. Funland, not fun. Funland. Right, now, without the family man, they need a guest of honor. So it's a good thing the Corinthians just walked in. They are super excited to see him. Funland wants his autograph. The mention of the lip collector, that gave me a 
a pretty dark chuckle. <laughs> okay. I thought that was kind of funny. Looks like he was killed by a crow or something. <laughs> so, oh yeah, okay. Never mind. <laughs> I thought I had something to say that I hadn't said yet, and then I read this note, and it just says, The Corinthian is dressed goofy, which we've already discussed at length. <laughs> Uh, right, but that doesn't change Nimrod and Funland's impression of him. He's a legend among the collectors, they say, so they ask him to be keynote speaker, and he agrees. He's actually, he's literally a legend. He's a living legend. Because Dream made him up. That's true. And that brings us to our title page, Collectors, and it's sort of an American flag rendered in dripping blood splashed over a collage of psychopaths. Okay, yeah, how many of these people did you recognize? Is that Medusa? Yeah, that appears to be Medusa. Are a lot of these real-life murderers? I don't know a lot of real-life murderers on site. That's a pretty dangerous way to live, I suppose. <laughs> no, to tell you the truth, I didn't recognize a lot of them. This guy in the bottom left is wearing a hockey mask. Yeah, yeah, that would that's an easy one. He's kind of a gimme. There's a guy here who looks kind of like Norman Bates. Mm. That... Might be John Wayne Gacy? I don't know. I've never, you know, that's never particularly been a hobby of mine. Some people probably right. know, like, the faces of a bunch of serial killers on site. But So, Nimrod has to give the opening speech, and he has stage fright. And we cut away to a little bit of background on who Nimrod is. Basically, he overcomes his fear of women by killing and butchering them. And he has... Four full-chest freezers in a cabin somewhere that no one knows about. Yeah, one thing that this issue doesn't back away from is, like, the inherent misogyny of serial killers. Yeah. Basically. Like, you know, you can imagine this issue being done in a very sort of Adams Family-like way. Yeah. You know, where it's played as kind of goofy. It's like a bunch of serial killers, they're... You know, they, they do all the normal things that you expect to see at a trade convention, except that, like, it's with murder, you know? But instead, Gaiman actually, like, delves into their psychology. Yeah, and I think that's important to do both in terms of keeping it not just a joke. And it, it is a joke in a sense, because they do do the things that you do at a trade convention, but it's played as a very, it's a very black joke. Yeah. But also in terms of setting up the way that this issue ends. It's not played on that sort of cheese ball level. Yeah. So, basically, Nimrod breaks the ice by telling a rape joke, and it's a big hit. Yeah, and it's, like, I mean, it's just a really clumsy and, like, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. Like, a really hackneyed joke. Mm, okay. And the fact that everyone laughs uproariously just goes to show that they're really not normal. Now, he gives to the attendees the convention's two rules, which are no real names and no killing. No shitting where they eat. Are there only two? Oh, okay, yeah. He, he says thirdly, but what follows is not a rule, but rather his introduction of the Corinthian to take the place of the family man. Right. And the other thing that's interesting here is he says they've called him the Eye Guy, the Dark Angel, the Shades, and maybe a thousand other names, but we've always known it was one man. Right. So that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So we get a brief glimpse of the film program at the convention. They're showing a bunch of serial killer movies, naturally. Right, yeah. Including Manhunter, which is the first 
Hannibal Lecter adaptation for the big or any other screen and was the only one that existed when this was published. Yeah, that's right. Because this comic book came out before The Silence of the Lambs and Anthony Hopkins' legendary performance in that film. Yeah, so that's William Peterson as Graham and Brian Brian Cox Cox as Lecter. And is it uh, Ted Noonan as Dollarhide? Uh, I think that's right. And we find in the convention a young guy named the Boogeyman. And he's introducing himself to an older guy called the Doctor. They both know each other by reputation. And Boogeyman asks if the Doctor knows Chaste Magazine, which the Doctor has heard of. You know, this word keeps coming up because it came up in this issue. And at the same time as we were getting ready to record this episode, Defenders had just dropped oh, yeah. on Netflix. And it has an organization called The Chaste. Yeah, that's right. So that's presumably a magazine about Scott Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. The monthly snail joke. <laughs> and I'm going to have to explain that reference. <laughs> we get a little background on the doctor. He's a really famous and successful surgeon. He's treated presidents. And he also collects leather neckties, which he makes himself. Yeah. So probably not real leather. No. But I don't think people would approve of those neckties. <laughs> no, probably not. The other thing that's really chilling here is the whole give me a number conversation, mm-hmm. where if you give the bogeyman a number, he'll tell you the victim that corresponds with that number and like describe them for you. Ah, okay. I yeah, never really understood what he meant by give me a number. That's really eerie. Oh, yep. He did that. He does it on the page. Yeah, it's okay. a thing that happens. Understood. <laughs> and the boogeyman is like really apparently uncomfortable when he finds out that another serial killer named Dog Soup is a woman. Mm-hmm. So again, misogyny in their little community is struck upon. Yeah, as a theme here. Now we get a brief glimpse of a panel on how to make serial killing pay, basically by working for the mob. Meanwhile, oh, is that what it was? The thing to remember is that they'll pay to know for certain. Even if the cops don't go with it, the families will. Okay. See, I didn't take that as being about the mafia. I thought that they were talking about extorting money from the families to tell them where their loved ones' remains are. That actually makes a lot of sense in the context of what he's saying. And then somebody else says, surely that's a worst-case scenario because they've caught you alive. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. All right, so... We find Gilbert and Rose in the elevator, and Gilbert can't tell Rose what's up. But for her safety, he gives her a note. If things get bad, call the name, Rose Walker. Call him, and may God have mercy on us all. Yeah, a little bit before that, while they're sharing an elevator with the Corinthian, there's a bit of actually pretty effective physical comedy here, where Gilbert recognizes the Corinthian and, like, awkwardly hides his face behind his hat so that the Corinthian won't recognize him. Because, well, for reasons I can't explain just yet. Right. You may be suspecting, though, who Gilbert actually is. I know that I was. Well in advance of the actual reveal. hmm So, Corinthian pulls Bogeyman out of the religion panel and brings him to a dark room where the Doctor and Nimrod are waiting. See, they've figured out that he's not the bogeyman. He's Philip Sitz, the writer-editor of Chaste Magazine. Shameless self-promotion. Maybe don't mention Chaste Magazine to, to everyone you, you talk to if you're trying to stay undercover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if he was trying to get an exclusive 
then coming here would be very stupid but kind of understandable. It's almost more like he's just trying to sell the magazine. <laughs> right. So they knock him out and talk about how normally they don't shit where they eat, but now it's become a necessity. Yeah. And they're like, somebody asks why they don't just put him in the trunk of Corinthian's car. Yeah. And Corinthian says, I have something in the trunk already. Right. Which is like the least inconspicuous way to say that. Like, you don't like archly be like, I have something in the trunk already. Just be like, oh, there's no room. Yeah. Yeah. But I have something in the trunk. Yeah. Already. But, but they're enjoying being able to tell that joke because they're in a room full of serial killers. Well, if you read it that way, it's fine. If you see it as him actually trying to... to actually not... trying to be coy? Yeah. I mean, they aren't supposed to shit where they eat, so he's technically breaking the rules. Mm, that's a good by point. By having Jed in his trunk. It's Jed. Jed's what's in the trunk, guys. Yeah. Yeah, well, which we knew that Jed was in his car before, so it's Jed. So they string Philip up to a tree, and... Corinthian says he came to learn, so they're going to teach him. It isn't the sex, it isn't the power, isn't the cruelty. We are soldiers of darkness, Philip, gladiators, warriors, and gods, and we will teach you. The good doctor likes to skin people alive. Nimrod is a hunter. He can bone, joint, and gut any animal in minutes. For myself, I have a penchant for eyes. And do you know what we're going to do now, Philip? We are going to take turns. Yeah, that's one of the scariest lines in the series. Yeah, again, that, that part is really effectively creepy. This panel where he says we're going to take turns really reminded me of something from Batman, but I couldn't put my finger on precisely what. There might be a page in Long Halloween that looks a lot like this. Yeah, in the panel where he says that Corinthian, Nimrod, and the Doctor have their faces thrown in shadow, so all we can see are their teeth and the glasses that two of them are wearing. Right. Their big smiling teeth. And the gleaming of the knife. Yes. Listeners, if you know what piece of Batman art, if it even is Batman art, that I'm thinking of, go ahead and write in and tell us. Meanwhile, outside the convention dance, Funland is talking about how he likes to hunt children at amusement parks. The people who run the place know about it, but they cover it up. Yeah, and I think Gaiman really cleverly intimates which amusement park he's talking about without actually, you know, saying the name of it and opening himself up to a lawsuit from, you know, an incredibly powerful corporation. Yes. But yeah, he really lets you know. And furthermore, he even insinuates that in addition to uh, having a serial killer operating there, the management actually knows about the murders and covers them up. Right. They want people to keep coming there. They don't want people to think it's dangerous. Very scary. And just about now, Rose shows up. She wants to sneak into the convention dance, but Funland turns her away. And he notes that she's 17 or 18, but he thinks she looks younger. Yeah, and he creepily loves that. Yeah. So then we cut to some more chat between the attendees. There's a guy here who's only killed eight people. He's called the connoisseur because he only kills pre-op transsexuals. Yeah, he's very selective. A very selective group. Now this is interesting because this is actually not a two-page spread, but looks like it is. Which is the opposite of the problem that we usually have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So once again, there's an undertone of misogyny to the tenor of his crimes. And... We might also say that 
the use of the word transsexuals and the implication that they all get surgery is an artifact of the time in which this was written. Yeah, I think that's fair. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Nimrod and the Corinthian are driving back to the hotel, splattered with bud. Splattered with bud. <laughs> they uh, they shook up a they shook up a six pack of bud, <laughs> and they just spread it all over themselves. And now they're splattered with bud. <laughs> Can you believe they had a beer with Philip and let him go? Oh well. <laughs> I guess they thought he learned his lesson. <laughs> it took them a really long time to drink the beers, though. Because they took turns. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, anyway, they talk about killing Philip together and how it was enjoyable doing it together. Yeah, once again, the Corinthian mentions that he has something in his trunk. Just a little something for later, he says. And then he is sort of caught by surprise by the fact that he has to give a speech. Yeah, he doesn't seem shy, though. Right. So, in the morning, Rose goes to Gilbert's room to find that he is gone. And the only thing he has left behind is a piece of paper. Which, we'll find out what that is in a couple of pages. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the same piece of paper that he handed her before. It is. Okay. Yeah, that's what we find out in a couple of pages, is that he didn't even leave a farewell note. It's just the same piece of paper where he wrote down the name and showed it to her. Okay. We get a brief look at some of the panel discussions at the convention. We are what we are. Women in serial killing. There is no sanity clause. And then Funland has a conversation with a guy who makes a pretty explicit comparison between killing and masturbation. Right. Neil Gaiman actually got in trouble for this page when it first came out. He was told there's no masturbation in the DC universe. <laughs> What? <laughs> That's what I read. Yeah. It doesn't it just doesn't exist. So, the interesting thing about this guy is that he's actually looking for help. He wants to stop killing people, but there's nobody at the convention who's interested in helping him. Right, like he thought it would be more like a support group and less like a you know, a celebration. Yeah, of murder. Now, Funland spots Rose going by on her way back from breakfast, and we actually see his sightline. Yeah, it is drawn. And he decides to break rule number two. Yeah. So she gets back to her room and is looking at the note Gilbert left when someone knocks. It's Funland. And he gets in the room and knocks her down. And his dialogue on this page is incredibly creepy. I don't really want to read it, but... Oh, why would we read it? God. No, but... Um... Once was enough. <laughs> Yeah, but he knocks her down, and it looks like he's trying to rape her. Somewhat ambiguous, perhaps, the degree to which he succeeds. Yeah, it's interesting in this panel, the wolf picture on his shirt is not, like, not fully rendered. And instead, it appears almost as, like, a window that goes through his silhouette. Yeah, that's a really interesting effect. But... Things have gotten bad in a hurry, and Rose decides to call the name. Yeah, we see her grapple for the paper and get a hold of it, and we can read the name on it. And then she does. Morpheus? And he appears. Let go of her, Nathan Diskin. I just want to point out something else here, which is that 
Diskin, a.k.a. Funland, he has a picture of the big bad wolf on his shirt, as we already mentioned. But there's also parallels to the story that Gilbert told. Mm -hmm. He tells Rose that she can take off her dress. She won't need it anymore. And he also says that if she says something dirty, that would make her a slut. Right. Which goes back to the the cat slut-shaming Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, in the story. In the story. In the semi-original version. Yes. He also says, as he comes into the room, it's a small world after all. I love that song. It's so true. Yeah, again, Neil Gaiman's doing everything short of saying the name of Diskin's preferred hunting ground. But yeah, when Morpheus comes in, Funland protests that Morpheus can't have her. She's my friend. We were playing. She's mine. And Morpheus replies... She isn't yours, Nathan. She belongs to no one except perhaps to herself. The feminist rejoinder. Yeah, I, I liked that he said that, but it's sort of it's sort of countermanded by his own confrontation with Rose in the coming issues. So that's somewhat true. Now Morpheus takes out Funland by putting him into a pleasant dream of being friends with a bunch of little children. And he tells Rose, heal and breathe, then leave this building. Rose agrees, getting to her feet and staggering out. I have to say, this is like remarkably weak punishment for Funland, right? Oh, just that he put him to sleep? That he put him to sleep and in his dream he's just having a good time with all these kids. It seems to suggest that, you know, what he wants isn't really killing. That's a failed attempt to get the kind of uh, rapport that he's after. But, I mean, he's a monster and all the punishment he gets is... A nice dream. Well, he also gets the punishment. Presumably, he also gets the punishment that all the serial killers get at the end of the issue. Fair enough. So, I I think that this is... Well, first of all, we've seen Morpheus do this before. People do horrible things, and he just gives them pleasant dreams as a, (laughs) you know... Yeah, he just gets them out of his own way. Right, yeah, exactly. He doesn't really care about justice, as we've said. We often see him give people pleasant dreams as a way of dealing with them, even after they've done some of the worst stuff imaginable. Mm -hmm. But I also think that this is Gaiman's opportunity to show us more of Funland's psychology. Mm -hmm. You know, this is clearly a character that that Gaiman finds quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, he probably gets the most focus out of all the serial killers here. Right. So, meanwhile, the Corinthian is giving the keynote speech of the convention, and... It is a real psychopath villain speech. He says that the serial killers are the American dreamers. So he, he's linking serial killing to dreaming and to, you know, the themes of the book Sandman in a very explicit way. He also says that they're entrepreneurs in an expanding field, which was kind of funny. Yeah, it's a real disjointed speech, but he basically takes the position that because they kill for no reason... They they sort of have the ultimate freedom. They sort of assert their lives over everything else. Yeah, and just like the the pretentiousness of it and like how clearly full of himself and how full of, you know, 80s buzzwords he is is, <laughs> is, is kind of humorous. He's just like transparently sort of small and petty prick. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And so he argues that their purpose is essentially darkness for darkness's sake. And then somebody interrupts the stage 
Morpheus rises from a seat in a middle row and approaches the stage. I like that the Corinthian just says, uh, <laughs> when Morpheus catches his line of sight. You know, he knocks him off of his, his role that he was on. Yeah. And then Morpheus has one of the best speeches in the series, so I apologize for reading a lot right now. You disappoint me, Corinthian. You and these humans you inspired and created disappoint me. You were to be my masterpiece, or so I thought. A nightmare created to be the darkness and the fear of darkness in every human heart. A black mirror made to reflect everything about itself that humanity will not confront. But look at you. Forty years walking the earth, honing yourself, infecting others with your joy of death. And what have you given them? What have you wrought, Corinthian? Nothing. Just something else for people to be scared of, that's all. You've told them that there are bad people out there. And they've known that all along. Yeah, that's it's pretty good writing there. Uh, yeah, so he just took the Corinthians' ideals apart instantly. <laughs> yeah, so the Corinthian takes off his glasses and reveals his chompers for eyes. Yeah. And says, basically asks, do you expect me to, to give in quietly? Right, and then he challenges Morpheus to a fight. And Morpheus says, no. And he just... The, the Corinthian pulls a knife and charges Morpheus, and Morpheus just catches the knife harmlessly through his hand. Like, it pierces through his hand in a way that would look like it should hurt, but it doesn't at all. Yeah, and when the Corinthian asks, are you going to drag me back into the dreaming and take my freedom away, Morpheus says, no, that's not it. Instead, he's going to completely uncreate the Corinthian. It is my fault, I am afraid. I created you poorly, then, as I do uncreate you now. And he unmakes the Corinthian, melting him into a pile of flesh with a teeny little tooth-eyed skull, which he then takes and puts in his pocket. The next time I make you, you shall not be so flawed and petty, little dream. And then Morpheus turns to the assembled parties. And you, you that call yourselves collectors, until now you have all sustained fantasies in which you are the maltreated heroes of your own stories. And he passes his judgment on the serial killer's convention. For this is my judgment on you, that you shall know, at all times and forever, exactly what you are, and you shall know just how little that means. Yeah, so basically he gives all these serial killers, like, a perfectly disillusioned image of themselves. Which is a pretty good punishment. <laughs> yeah, and so that ties in nicely with what we've seen as each killer sort of gets to tell his own story to the book itself. In the little, the little flash sideways that show what they're all about. Right. And it's interesting to think of this in comparison particularly, I mean, to the guy who is looking for help, who doesn't stop killing, even though he, he knows it's wrong and he wants to stop. And as well, you look at it in relation to Funland, who in his head believes that he wants something other than to kill kids, but that's what he does. Right. The stories that they've told about themselves are illusions, and he's taken those illusions away. Meanwhile, Rose is outside where Morpheus sent her after rescuing her from Funland, and she is surprised to see Gilbert return, and he's holding Jed in his arms. Yeah, he found Jed in the trunk of a car, heard him sobbing. He's alive, but he's in urgent need of medical help. Yeah, and unconscious. And Gilbert knows immediately that Rose called Morpheus and that there will be consequences for both of them. Yeah, that's true. 
which is sort of the only hint that you get as to like how there are still two issues left of this story arc. Because with the Corinthian taken out, it really seems like things are kind of wrapping up nicely. Yeah, but there's still a lot going on with the dream vortex and the missing dreams. Yes, indeed. So the last page of this issue is sort of a, a mirror of the first page. As the first wind of winter blows over the motel, the collectors shuffle furtively away. They left more tentatively than they had come, as if they had seen something unholy inside themselves, something they would never be able to forget. And they left slowly, one by one, with reluctance, leaving the safety of the light for the chill certainties of the darkness. It seemed like the night sucked them up, took them into its dark heart. It seemed like the darkness swallowed them. Perhaps it did. All right. So that issue was, I think, sort of a dark masterpiece of an issue. You know, very, very unsettling. Just kind of, you know, it really wallows in the, in the sickness of all these characters. But it treats it in such an unflinching way, while at the same time having a pretty effective air of black comedy about it. Yeah, I agree with all of that. It was macabre, and it was kind of fun at the same time, and it was very scary, and it has a couple of Morpheus's best speeches, and one of the best examples of sort of ironic justice that we get to see delivered in the series. Right. So, that brings us to Doll's House Part 6, which is issue 15 of Sandman, Into the Night. Written by Neil Gaiman, pencils by Mike Drinkenberg, inks by Malcolm Jones III. Usually they're credited as the art team, this time they're credited for their specific jobs, and there's an interesting credit here too, thanks to Sam Keith. Yeah, did you know what that was about? I had an understanding that he helped with some of the art in this issue, and I was unable to find confirmation of that. I see. Well, the cover of this issue is by Dave McKeon, and it shows us one of the spider women who we met a couple of issues ago. It's a woman wearing a veil with a spider crawling across the surface of the veil. Right, and the top and bottom borders of this cover are also of lace. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool-looking cover. First page is also the title page. The title is Into the Night, and we learned that Jed, though hospitalized, has not yet regained consciousness. Yeah, so we're back at the boarding house. And Rose finally returns, having been let out of the hospital, and Hal is there to greet her. Yeah, she's actually, it looks like she's talking to everyone. Hal is there, and so are Barbie and Ken and the spider women. Yeah, now here's a neat artistic touch on the bottom of the first page. The red and blue streaks in Rose's hair do not reach all the way to the top, indicating that her hair has been growing for some time since she had the chance to do anything about it. And it contributes to her general bedraggled look. Yes, indeed. Ken and Barbie offer their sympathies. They don't like hospitals. No, indeedy. <laughs> Chantal explains at length that she and Zelda stayed up to greet Rose and offer support. Zelda, Chantal says, has a homily about footprints in the sand, but she doesn't speak to anyone but Chantal. Yeah, this is, this is a really funny line, actually. Zelda has a reassuring moral homily concerning God, difficult times, and a variable number of footprints in the sand. She told it to me once, and it cheered me up remarkably. Uh, Rose sort of thanks them for it, but doesn't want to hear it right now. And Hal gives Rose some tea and sends her to bed. 
I like that Rose is a character who is sort of a counterpoint to Morpheus in so many ways. And one recurring thing about her is that she doesn't want to hear people's stories. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. But yeah, Rose can't sleep. She misses her mother. Her newly discovered grandmother is about to die, it seems. That's right. Her mother can't be here to help because she has to take care of Unity, who is dying in England. And Rose basically hasn't been able to sleep because of worry over those two. It's an interesting contrast, too. Rose says, But Mom has to stay on in England looking after Unity. I don't understand it. Why do they both have to be sick at the same time? It shouldn't be me out here. It ought to be Mom. And that contrasts really nicely with her pride at being on her own and being the one sent to investigate to look for Jed a couple of issues ago. Right. When she was imagining a triumphant conclusion, she thought it was great. But now that it's, you know, a little more than she can take, she's not having so much fun. Yeah, now she's wishing it was her mother doing this. So, everybody goes to bed, and we find ourselves thrown into the dreams of the other boarders. Yeah. Ken has this very modern dream. People with square faces and square panels talking about money and numbers. Yep. And a little bit of text speak before text speak existed. Oh, yeah. Barbie's dream seems to me to be sort of Gaiman riffing on the idea of stories. Like, it's this very this very overwrought and fanciful fairy tale with all these, you know, sort of unique and extraneous details. Yeah, she dreams this epic fantasy. And interestingly, she seems to appear in it as Barbie. She's wearing a fairy tale dress, but she's got sunglasses and huge perfect hair. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. She's traveling with Martin Tenbones, who's a big cat thing, to get to the Arch of the Porpentine so that they can keep the Porpentine, which is some kind of magic crystal, from the cuckoo. Yeah, and she rides on the cat creature. Yeah, Chantal's dream is weird. She is having a relationship with a sentence. Yeah, I thought that was funny. And then at the end, she discovers that she can't read, which is common in dreams. <laughs> and so her relationship with the sentence is kind of moot. Yes, I like the line, The sentence spent most of last year in Czechoslovakian for political reasons, but it was recently translated back into English. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zelda is having a much more sort of gothic and spooky dream. The narration here is in run-on words that never break. Well, I guess they break at the lines, but not between words. Yeah, she's a little girl in a graveyard, apparently just after her parents' death, and Chantal took her in. And this is kind of interesting. She pictures herself marrying Chantal, but she's afraid that when the veil is lifted, it will be her mother. So she's obviously got a really complex relationship with Chantal. Right, and we still don't know exactly what their relationship is. Right. She's actually relieved when the veil is lifted and it's a spider's face. There's a couple of recurring Neil Gaiman references on this page. Oh, yeah? Zelda refers to the graveyard as the Old Bone Orchard. Uh, Gaiman also refers to a graveyard by that name in American Gods. In fact, the first episode of the TV show is called The Bone Orchard. Okay. And Zelda uses the phrase, Secret brides with the faceless slaves of the forbidden house of the nameless knight of the Castle of Dread Desire, which is very, very close to the name of a story that's collected in Fragile Things. I haven't read that one. She also holds a tiny human skull on this page, kind of like the Corinthian skull that we saw last issue, but without the teeth. Right. 
Meanwhile, in Hal's dream, he dreams of uh, Betty Davis, Judy Garland, and Marilyn Monroe. Sure. Is that right? And they're about to tell him a big secret, but he wakes up before he can hear it. Yeah, and then he finds himself back in the dream where Judy Garland takes her face off to reveal the Wicked Witch, who then takes her face off to reveal a plain middle-aged woman. So that's another Hecate reference. Ah, so it is. Good catch. But yeah, I wanted to point out that that is also another fairly common dream trope. You know, the big anticipation, especially the big anticipation to learn something or see something, and then you wake up just as it's supposed to happen. Yeah, that's fairly common. Happens to me a lot. Meanwhile, we get a whole page of Rose unable to sleep. Yeah, and she's still processing everything that she's going through and that she has been through. Yeah, the call from England saying that Unity is sick, what the doctors told her about Jed, and her encounters with Funland and Morpheus. Yeah. And then she wonders where Gilbert is, and we get an answer. He's walking into the hospital to visit Jed. And he says whom again. He spells it H-O-O-M. And it's not a word. As far Just as kind I'm of a general... Word thinking noise yeah it's sort of like his version of hum for the first time in this issue we pop over to not just a dreaming but the dreaming where morpheus and matthew are watching the vortex below them a swirling sort of whirlwind of light which morpheus explains is also rose walker yeah but morpheus tells matthew that the vortex is not his concern it's something morpheus has to handle by himself Meanwhile, Matthew should be watching over Jed. Now, Matthew here says, I don't like hospitals. As we explained earlier in our coverage of Sandman, Matthew is actually Matthew Cable from the pages of Swamp Thing, who spent the last days of his life in a coma. That's right. So he had a long convalescence before he eventually passed away. And that's, that's why he doesn't like hospitals. And he's not the only one. Rose, Barbie, and Ken have all already said that line. They have indeed. But yeah, Matthew wants to know what a vortex is, but Morpheus basically refuses to explain it. And he sends him to Jed's hospital room saying, there is someone you must bring to me. Now we're back in the dreams, except they're starting to run together. Yeah. Barbie is traveling with Martin Tenbones, expecting an attack by the Cuckoo's forces. And then something does intrude upon them as Ken's dream suddenly merges into Barbie's. Yeah. Ken seems to be dreaming at this point of really uncomfortable sex. Yeah. Like, just really, really high pressure, you know, not satisfying or enjoyable, but just but just sort of humiliating and anxiety-inducing sexual encounters. Mm-hmm. Chantal sort of deals with this by putting herself into an infinitely regressing loop of story. It was a dark and stormy night. And somebody asks for a story, and the story he is told begins, it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's a cliche. Yeah, although we get the little detail of it being the skipper and the mate, which uh, I thought gave it a little more flavor. Mm -hmm. And this page shows a card depicting a pirate spiraling into infinity. Zelda dreams a fully formed gothic romance in complete sentences. There's a boy arriving by coach at a scary old mansion, and as she narrates the story, we see her 
wearing a lace veil and lace underwear, stalked by a shadowy figure. Meanwhile, in Hal's dream, he is dreaming of an ex-lover, but not the way he was in real life, more like the way that Hal wanted him to be. And there's also music in the background of his dream. This is If I Were a Bell from Guys and Dolls, which I recognized immediately because that is one of my two or three favorite musicals of all time. Ah, I did not recognize that. Good catch. And finally, Rose has fallen asleep and we see her dream. She's looking over her sleeping self and knowing she's dreaming. We see here the giant face of Rose looking over Rose in the dark. Yeah, and it's sort of like she's in charge of it. She's in control of her dream. She starts to feel everyone else's dreams around her. This is such a cool drawing of the house, too, with, like, the different rooms that people occupy in the house, marked off by panels of their dreams. Chantal, dreaming intricate self-referential loops, trying to reveal nothing of herself to herself. Zelda, still fighting old battles, the little girl lost in the woman whose heart she shares. Barbara's rich dream life, more valid and true than anything she feels while waking. Ken's churning world of money and sex and power. Hal's endless quest for identity and love. Now, is that... Is Hal standing before the Emerald City from Wizard of Oz? Yes, he absolutely is. Okay. So that's yet another yet another Wizard of Oz reference in Hal's head. What was Hal's stage name? Do you remember? God. Is that a Wizard of Oz thing? The show is called, the show is called Hello, Dolly. Oh, it's Miss Dolly, isn't it? Dolly Lamore. Ah, okay. So no, not uh, Wizard of Oz related, or at least not as far as I'm aware. Yeah, so Rose is feeling everybody else's dream, and she feels how simple it would be to break down the walls separating them. So she does. And we get an awesome... And it fucks everything up! But it doesn't fuck up the art in this comic book, as we get an awesome two-page spread of Rose at the heart of the vortex, as everyone else finds themselves sharing their dreams. Yeah, and we've got a right-side-up panel, and two sideways panels, and an upside-down panel. And the upside-down panel is Morpheus rushing in. Yes, indeed. This looks really cool. Ken confronting Barbie here in this in this one panel, seemingly just upset that her dreams are so unlike his. Whereas they're, you know, almost perfectly the same in, in life. Yeah. In another panel, Zelda and Chantal embrace... Rose's awareness expands to feel everyone in the city around her, all little fragments of the dreaming, and she breaks down the walls between all of them, unites everyone into one dreaming. Enough, says Morpheus, again, and then again, only getting through to her on the third time. Uh, what happened? She asks. You caused a great deal of damage, nothing I cannot repair, not at this stage, anyway. I am the lord of this realm, Rose Walker, and I think the time has come for us to talk. There's something going on with the depiction of Rose on this page, too. When we saw her at the heart of the vortex, she was wearing sort of a flowing blue nightdress. And over the course of the next page, it sort of slowly disappears. It drapes over her much the way that angels and nymphs and mythological creatures are often depicted in classical art. And then it's gone completely. Like, somehow the appearance of Morpheus causes her to be naked. Well, and it's not dissimilar the blue nightdress which sort of turns into a blue shroud and then like blows away in the vortex is not dissimilar from the robe that morpheus is wearing they Mm -hmm. they kind of look the same of course he doesn't end up naked 
Yeah, I wonder, I guess you could read that as his presence sort of disarming her. Yeah, that's an interesting... Or or maybe it's not his presence that disarms her. It's like, it's more a symbol of how she's more and more losing control. Losing herself in the vortex. Right, as she sort of becomes this vortex and starts taking apart the walls between everyone's dreams. Mm-hmm. The dreamers all wake up. Barbie is crying and doesn't know why. And Ken says things to her in the dark that he'll later regret. Chantal and Zelda wake up and hold each other in the darkness like sisters until dawn. Hal awakes with a feeling of dread. He goes to look in on Rose and isn't surprised at all to see she's gone. Yeah, so I think, again, this is something that we've seen before. You know, some kind of colossal damage happened on a citywide scale, if not a global scale, during this dream vortex. But Gaiman sort of masterfully encapsulates it by showing us only the aftermath for the characters we already know. Mm-hmm. And this is this is sort of similar to the way that he showed the chaos wreaked by Dr. Destiny. You know, it also reminded me of the Sleepy Sickness victims back in the first issue. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Meanwhile, it's 4.30 a.m. in England. Unity wakes and calls for Miranda. That, by the way, is Rose's mother. Unity's daughter. Yes, indeed. Now, Miranda's keeping vigil over Unity, and she hasn't slept in two days. And Unity comes to herself, and she says that Rose should have the dollhouse. Reminding us, once again, that Unity has a big, awesome old dollhouse of the house that she used to live in when she was a child. Yeah, that's right. And... She says she wishes her parents were here, but at least she has Miranda. Right, to make her less afraid of dying. Which, you know, is putting a big burden on Miranda that Unity doesn't seem to appreciate. Yeah, and there's a really realistic, if cold, line here as Unity falls back asleep and Miranda thinks, I didn't need that. Yeah. I have to say this does look like a very uh, a very peaceful death. She's in this beautiful bed in this warmly lit, beautiful room with the childhood dollhouse almost within arm's reach. Yeah, at the same time, there's something tragic about Unity Kincaid's death taking the form of just not being able to keep herself awake anymore as she is the girl who slept for 70 years. Yeah, that's true. So Miranda thinks her mother is dying, her son may be dying, but at least Rose is all right. Which brings us back to Morpheus and Rose flying over the dreaming. Yeah, the clouds are like literal faces. And he brings her to this high, small plateau. There's a little cute dialogue, maybe a bit of flirtation between them, as Rose says that she's heard flying dreams are really dreams about sex. And Morpheus replies, then what if you dream about sex? (laughs) Well, he would know. He's the only one who can answer that question. Now, the the landscape of the dreaming here looks, for the moment, very barren and bleak. That's something we're going to come back to. Mm Mm-hmm. Now we find Matthew flying into Jed's hospital room. He doesn't know what he's here for, but Gilbert does. He's here to take Gilbert home. Yeah, and once again, Matthew sort of takes this opportunity to ruminate on his past. I haven't been doing this for long. It's all kind of new, but I'm getting used to it. I think I like being a dream better than I like to be in a man. I did some rotten things near the end. You know how it is? Let's just say I'm glad all that stuff is in the past and in another life. And Gilbert replies, but that was in another country and besides the wench is dead. I see. 
That's uh, Christopher Marlowe, the Jew of Malta. Yes, indeed. And he also says whom, I think, for the third or fourth time. Yeah, and Gilbert deliberately draws the contrast that's evident in this scene. He is a dream who wanted to be a man, and Matthew is a man who prefers to be a dream. Right. Yeah. So Gilbert is perfectly willing to come home, but he's horrified when Matthew mentions that Rose is the vortex. <laughs> yeah, this is, I think, an unintentionally hilarious panel. His, like, little glasses fly off, and his face just looks so, I don't even know what, so stricken, I guess, but in a mm-hmm. kind of over-the-top way. This makes me realize that Gilbert also has a mustache and no beard. Yeah, that's a good point. Just like just like a couple of the serial killers, but he's <laughs> but he's clearly a good guy. Yeah, well, so maybe with his physique and his general look, he's deliberately contrasted a bit with Funland as well. Yeah, they two kind of look similar to each he other. He is somebody who really gets on with people much younger than himself. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, do we have an example of that other than Rose? No. Yeah, so... And Rose is weird, so... <laughs> yes, yes, she is. So, upon hearing that Rose is the Vortex, he's quite upset, and he says he says that Morpheus is going to have to terminate her physical existence to protect the dreaming. It's the only time he's empowered to take human life, you see. It's one of the rules. And in the last panel of the issue, as he walks out of the hospital room with Matthew perched on his hand, he says he's going to have to kill her, and within his silhouette, you see the Baron wasteland to which he will be going to meet Morpheus and Rose. All right. You want to talk about that one or do you want to move on to the last issue? Oh, I think we have to talk about it. This is quite possibly the weirdest issue of Sandman we've seen yet. (laughs) Okay. I I mean, just like these dreams are so, are so bizarre and so like distinctively flavorful from each other. And, you know, the fact that, I don't know, just the fact that it, it all takes place in such a in such a short period of time, you know, where everyone's staying up late, pushing back their bedtimes to greet Rose, and then they all go to sleep. Yeah, we've seen dreams as horror comic nightmares in the first couple of issues, and we've seen nightmares brought into reality by Dr. Destiny. This might be the first time that we see dreams as sort of the combination of psychological realism and just plain weird (laughs) that they are (laughs) yeah i I think that's right we definitely saw dreams as escapism in jed's case yeah uh, in the earlier part of the doll's house yeah and and we've also seen the sort of behind the scenes in the dreams thing going on in the dreaming where they've got all kinds of noodle implements that they're using to set up people's experiences right it's clear that the other tenants at this boarding house are very intricately constructed characters. Mm -hmm. And that Neil Gaiman had a clear picture of all of them, and he gives them them dreams to match, which are just super interesting to read. Yeah, and like you said, it works really well that we're coming into this with characters that we know, so that when we see their dreams, we can understand what they mean. The one complaint that I would have is that it's kind of been two issues since we've seen any of these people, because we had the issue at the serial killers convention and before that men of good fortune which was off topic completely well you know i i I think that i complained about that at the time when we read men of good fortune that gaiman was sort of introducing a lot of characters and then pushing them immediately to the back burner yeah without 
really delving into them in a prompt manner. Yeah. <laughs> but so so yeah, that would make this work a little better if, if it wasn't for the fact that like we got such fleeting introductions to these characters and then were apart from them for so long before this issue. But other than that, I think I think this is a really good issue. Mm-hmm. It's a really really strong and just bizarre in such a compelling way piece of work. Yeah, and again, the art and the layouts and the dreams are fantastic, and the real-world art that contrasts with it is really effective at bringing it back down to ground, too. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Sam Keith. <laughs> For whatever you did. I'm assuming it's all the good stuff. Wow. <laughs> you know what? I bet he did draw that cat creature. <laughs> you think he drew a Martin Ten Pumps? Because his cat expertise is unparalleled. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay, so, final part of the doll's house, Sandman number 16, Lost Hearts. Sandman number 16, Lost Hearts. Written by Sam, pencils by Creative, and inks by Team. Good job, Team. Good job, Team. It's it's Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones third again. Cover is, as usual, by Dave McKeon, and this is... Breaking the format of the rest of the covers in this sequence, as we have Morpheus sitting in kind of a burning church or mansion of some kind. I thought it was him sitting in front of the dollhouse, and the dollhouse was burning. But Oh, interesting. But yeah, I, I like how they usually have frames, and this one has like frames in the image. Mm-hmm. Like, there's all these empty picture frames around him, <laughs> but the actual image on the cover does not have a frame itself, or not much of one. It has a little bit of burning, burning edge to it. Yeah. So we open on the dreaming, where we do not get a repeat of dialogue we've already heard. Morpheus has just told Rose off screen that she's the Vortex and he has to kill her. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that is what I'm saying. And here, the similarity between Morpheus's attire and Rose's that I pointed out when we were talking about the last issue, I think really comes through more clearly. Yeah, well, she's reformed some degree of clothing for herself, and in this panel, as she's angry at him, it sort of flies off into the air. Right. I mean, she's sort of, she's wearing light blue and has one shoulder fully uncovered. He's wearing dark blue and has one shoulder fully uncovered. So she's pissed at first, but then she concludes it's just a joke, right? He just saved her life. Why would he kill her? And anyway, this is a dream, so it doesn't matter. Rose, I am sorry, but you are mistaken. You are right, this is a dream, but not a dream from which you awaken. Not now, not ever. There's a long beat, a three-panel beat, in which Morpheus sort of, in an almost out-of-character way, reaches out to put a hand on her shoulder of consolation, as he says, Rose. And she admits that she was just kidding herself, that he didn't really have to kill her. But she has a question. Why me? And with this, we cut away to Gilbert arriving in the Dreaming. Gilbert explains that he hopes to stop Morpheus from killing Rose, but he doesn't think he can. But, since nothing will make Morpheus angrier than he already is for Gilbert deserting the Dreaming, might as well try. Yeah, he also says that he was alive on Earth for 50 years as a person. And we get confirmation for the first time what many of us suspected, that Gilbert is in fact Fiddler's Green. Not a who, he says, but a where. And I think we talked about at the time that Fiddler's Green is a place, and I was 
confused as to how it could be a person. Yeah, sort of a heavenly place for sailors, and it had apparently taken the form of Rother G.K. Chesterton and wandered into the world. This is the last of the missing dreams. We saw Brute and Glob, who had teamed up with the Silver Age Sandman. We saw the Corinthian, who Morpheus defeated at the Collector's Convention. As he said earlier, all four of them arrayed themselves around Rose because she's the Vortex. Yeah, so they give this story arc that sort of checklist quality that tends to be, you know, so helpful in in structuring a story. Mm. So Morpheus is explaining what a vortex is. Once in every generation, a mortal is born who becomes the center of the dreaming. They unite all dreams and destroy the dreaming and are ultimately destroyed themselves. He says a whole world once died because of the dream vortex, and it's part of his function to keep it from happening again. Yeah, he also says that he doesn't even know himself why dream vortexes happen. But we do, because we overheard the conversation between desire and despair, Okay, where they basically admitted that it's them that, that do it. Oh, okay. I wasn't really clear on that point. Yeah, I, I think that's what I'm getting out of this anyway. Yeah, so he's hinting here that there are things that are kind of above even his level of authority, and she asks if he can just magic away the vortex, and he says he's powerful but not omnipotent. Yeah, he does tell her that she can live on within the dreaming, if she so chooses. Yeah, he makes her a rare offer to live out her afterlife, so to speak, in the dreaming. And once again, he apologizes. I... I am sorry, Rose. And then Gilbert hooms into the room. Have <laughs> <laughs> been waiting on that one? I have. <laughs> Morpheus demands to know why Fiddler's Green, which was once the heart of the dreaming, left. He says because he was tired and curious. And then he offers his life for Rose's. That is not an option. The girl must die that the dreaming may survive. I am sorry. So he apologizes like four times in this scene, and that's really not characteristic for him. No, I agree. It's quite affecting. Maybe showing a little bit that this is something that's not something he decided on, but something that he has to do. Right. In England, Unity wakes up again. She apologizes to Miranda for not being a good mother. Don't think about it, Unity. Mother, everything's going to be just fine. And Unity trails off as she says, I I think I'm going to have to sleep now. Yeah, and she's, she's not dying yet, but she is slipping back into unconsciousness and will never wake again. And as she falls into dreams, she recalls the tall, dark man with stars for eyes that she used to dream of as a child when she had the sleepy sickness. That's so fucking cool. That's a good part. So we have Rose and Gilbert in a very dark panel as Rose asks if there's anything they can do to stop Morpheus, and there isn't. Now, Matthew tries to console Rose by saying that, you know, dying and becoming a dream isn't that bad. He got used to it. But he also finds another opportunity to make reference to his old life here, saying, I wasn't having much of a life, mind you. Which is another reference to the fact that, you know, he was comatose for a long time before he died. Yeah. Morpheus says that he doesn't have the heart to punish Fiddler's Green, but orders him to retake his place. 
I must apologize to you, Miss Walker. Apologize for not being a very good human being. Not even a very good copy of a human, perhaps I should say. And now, when you need me most, it seems I have failed you. Rose tells him to stop apologizing because he'll make her cry and she doesn't want to give Morpheus the satisfaction. And then Gilbert resumes being a place. Suddenly, Rose and Morpheus are in it. It's a beautiful green glade. Yeah, in this barren wasteland where they've been standing for the last, you know, quite a while. The last part of the last issue and all of this issue so far becomes a lush and verdant jungle. Yeah, with notably purple mountains that were not in the distance before. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's become quite an attractive landscape. And Matthew says, Fiddler's Green, eh? Nice place. So on the next page we find Morpheus apologizing for the umpteenth time until Rose tells him to stop apologizing and just do it. (laughs) And once again, just in the nick of time, another interloper arrives. This time, it's Unity. Rose isn't going to die tonight. I am. Now this is a very young version of Unity that we haven't seen since issue number one, and that Rose has never seen. Right, Rose does not recognize her, but Unity introduces herself. And Unity is wearing a blue nightshirt very similar to the one that Rose started with. Yeah, and Rose's nightshirt sort of no longer appears to be blue, but has sort of turned green, as if to contrast it. Unity tells Morpheus that she was supposed to be the Vortex, if he hadn't been away from the Dreaming at the time. And Morpheus doesn't understand, to which Unity says, Of course you don't. You're obviously not very bright, but I shouldn't let it bother you. (laughs) She says, Rose, I once gave you a ring. Yeah, the amulet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I want you to reach inside yourself and give me whatever it is that makes you the Vortex. Give me your heart. And so Rose reaches into her chest and produces a red glass heart. And it strongly resembles the piece of glass that we saw in the prologue to this story arc. Yeah, that's right. And I also like that Rose doesn't know how to pull her heart out. But Unity reminds her that she's dreaming so she can do anything she wants. Yeah, that's right. So Unity takes the heart, now she is the Vortex, and she snaps it in two with a huge release of energy. And back in the real world, Unity finally dies. Yeah, there's six almost silent panels as Miranda looks on in shock. And then this is one of my favorite parts. Unity, on her knees, says, What? What happened? You died. Let me help you up. Morpheus says. So Morpheus tells Rose that he doesn't have to kill her anymore. The Vortex is gone. He says that she should leave the Dreaming, and he will send her brother back to consciousness in the morning, as a gift because her family has suffered enough. And then she woke up. It's six months later, and Rose is narrating now in a typeset font. We actually see that she is typing this out. She got a letter from Hal. He's selling the boarding house and moving west. She thinks that he met someone. Ken and Barbie split. Ken got himself a new partner who looks exactly like a younger Barbie, while Barbie's gone sort of seriously weird. The Spider-Women are buying the house, and Zelda actually spoke to Hal the other day. Yeah, I I thought that this would have been a lot more effective if it was in the same issue, where we saw these characters 
and, you know, learned all those things about them. Mm. Alas, the concerns of space. Right. And no one has seen Gilbert at all. We learned that Rose, Miranda, and Jed are living in a big house in Seattle. Unity left them all of her money, and there was a lot. Weird, huh? All that money, and she never even had a life. And since they moved in, Rose has hardly left her room. Now, at this point, the comic drops a major reveal. A year ago, my best friend died. Her name was Judy. She was killed, or perhaps she killed herself, in some kind of massacre in a small-town diner. And we see the headline, Six Slain in Diner of Death Riddle. This is a throwback to 24 Hours, my least favorite issue of Sandman, (laughs) as some of you may remember. Yeah, Dr. Destiny had trapped six people in a diner and forced them to do increasingly depraved things until he killed them all. And we saw Judy, she had just split up with her girlfriend Donna, and she actually called her best friend for advice on the payphone in the diner in that issue. That was Rose. Right. Judy was the one with the Joy Division jacket. I think it was. Yeah. And, by the way, under this narration we have Rose washing her hair dye out of her hair in a black-and-white checked bathroom, just like the one that she wandered into back in England. Yeah, I thought she was dyeing her hair, but in any case, we see her do that. And we learn from her narration that Rose vaguely remembers the dream in which her brush with death took place, but she can't really make sense of it all anymore. She wishes she could talk to Judy or Gilbert about the weird stuff in her life, but they're both gone. And she's pretty upset about the dream. She thinks that if it's true, everything we think we know is a lie. The world is a layer of scum on an infinitely deep black well. People are just dolls that only think they're in control of their lives. In my dream, I could have destroyed everybody in the world. In my dream, Gilbert wasn't even a person. He was a place. In my dream, Grandma Unity gave up her life for me. Dreams are weird and stupid, and they scare me. I haven't slept properly for six months now. And so she's made a decision. It was all just a dream. And then she woke up. I suppose there are worse endings. She goes downstairs and rejoins her mother and her brother and says basically that she's gonna gonna go back to her life. Gonna rejoin the human race. And as a part of that, she's changed her hair completely from the from the elaborate hairstyle that she had before with the blonde and the rainbow streaks. It's now a, a pretty simple brown. I would so say she, red. Okay, well, in any case, she's starting a new page. And Jed offers to show her something cool he found in the woods, and they run off together to do that. Yeah, he says he found a fox's den, and that seemed like a curiously specific thing to have him find, but I couldn't figure out what it was a reference to, Mm. or what the symbolic meaning of that might be. Okay. In the dreaming, Morpheus rises from his throne and walks into his gallery, taking up the heart, the glass heart, the sigil of desire. Yeah, and this is the third glass heart that we've seen in this story arc. Mm-hmm. Desire greets him, and without waiting for permission, he teleports through into Desire's realm. Yeah, Dream suspects Desire of setting up this entire chain of events. He says he's never heard of a vortex that passed through genetic lines, and he accuses Desire of meddling in his affairs, specifically of being Miranda's father and Rose's grandfather of being the person who raped Unity in her sleep. Was I to take the life of one of our blood with all that would entail? 
or was it more devious than that? What does it entail? We're going to find out in quite a long time. <laughs> I also note here that Desire is wearing fake cat ears on yeah. this page, which, yeah, I didn't get what that was about, but it obviously reminded me of Funland. Desire is also wearing a cat tail on this page. Oh, okay. Good point. Funland wasn't wearing one of those. Maybe Desire is just the cat that ate the canary on this page? <laughs> Could be. Dream threatens Desire openly. If you were not one of my kin. But I am. Yes, you are. And he goes on to give a little speech. Remember this. We of the Endless are the servants of the living. We are not their masters. We exist because they know deep in their hearts that we exist. And we do not manipulate them. If anything, they manipulate us. We are their toys. Their dolls, if you will. Yeah, and then he mentions Delirium, which is the first mention of one of the Endless. I don't think we've heard that particular name dropped before, have we? Maybe not. So yeah, that is an Endless that we are going to meet. And so Desire doesn't understand, so Dream gives a more direct threat. Mess with me or mine again, and I will forget that you are family, Desire. Do you believe yourself strong enough to stand against me? Against death? Against destiny? No. Yeah, so this ties into with what we saw back in the first issue of this story arc, that the Elder Three do not engage in the petty intrigues that desire and despair enjoy. Right. And after he leaves, the final page of the issue, end of the story arc, uh, makes it clear that desire does not believe a word he said about being the dolls, the, the servants of the mortals. And Desire walks the endless pathways of its body, certain that he, or she, or it, is in sole and only control of its destiny, the only inhabitant of the twilight realm of Desire, and it feels nothing like a doll. Nothing like a doll at all. Even though it's tiny and lives in a great big doll of itself. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. So, that one brings the whole thing to a close. Yeah, that was, that was quite the journey. A lot of balls in the air on that one. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, and a lot of, you know, a lot of really abrupt directional changes. This is a story arc with a really bizarre kind of structure to it. Yeah, it's kind of a bracketing structure. A bunch of stories contained within larger stories. And so as we move through it, we pass through the center and then back to the people we met before. And then to a wider story and then to a wider story. Yeah, I thought that most of these issues were really strong. Yeah, in general, I like a lot of what's going on here. It takes some time to get going, and there's occasionally a moment when you had the opportunity to forget something. It kind of works better if read all at once, and maybe with Men of Good Fortune set off to the side. Hmm. Yeah, I, I also like how referential this story arc is of the first issue. You know, it's almost like, the first issue of Sandman is like the holy text of the entire run, <laughs> and it keeps coming back to it in interesting ways. Yeah. We got some interesting interplay between Dream and a member of the Endless we hadn't really met before. And needless to say, those intrigues are going to come back somewhat. Yeah, and it also kind of like this, this second major story arc of Sandman mirrors the first major story arc of Sandman. In the first major story arc, Sandman lost several of his tools mm -hmm. because of his time in imprisonment. In this, he lost several of 
his dreams mm-hmm. that make up a part of his dream world and had to and had to go recover them. So again, like I said, the first issue keeps coming back to relevance as the plot goes on. Mm-hmm. As well, we see Dream and his world through the eyes of a really memorable and idiosyncratic character, Rose Walker. And yeah, she's a lot of, of fun. This is kind of the biggest version of a story that we're going to see over and over again is that somebody encounters Dream and witnesses sort of a facet of his personality, of his existence. I want to talk a little bit about the Corinthian. Okay. The Dream who abandoned his duties and went out into the earth basically to have fun, although he's crazy and evil and his fun is terrible. Yeah, and he dresses like Dwight Schrute on his day off. (laughs) Well, I think it was meant to be rakish at the time. (laughs) I think the Corinthian reflects a really major theme of this series, the difference between what and who, sort of a being's nature versus what it wants. The Corinthian was created to frighten, but fell prey to his own inborn desires. He escaped to the mortal world to act on them. Morpheus says outright that the flaw in the Corinthian came from his creation. The flaw is Morpheus's fault. With Morpheus, too, Gaiman questions whether he can be more than his purpose, his nature, the way he was created, whether a being can change. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. The Corinthian obviously changed for the worst. And Gilbert changed, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can... I think it's more debatable whether he changed for better or worse. You know, he was, like, this beautiful landscape, this place of peace and happiness. And he turned human and turned into, you know, a pretty, pretty solid dude. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, there's also there's also character change encapsulated in the story of Rose, you know, and how she goes from being a little bit more innocent about the world to becoming you know cynical and cynical and hardened and you know represented by the change of her hairstyle Mm -hmm. yeah rose demonstrates that a human can change morpheus at least seems to think that the flaw in the corinthian is inborn that he's ultimately bound by his nature and unable to escape from it yeah, I think there's also a, um, in the character of Unity, we get a sort of reminder of someone who's who's trapped, who's not able to change their destiny. You know, everything, Unity's entire life revolves around the, the petty games of the endless. You know? Yeah, she's given the sleepy sickness because, because of Morpheus's imprisonment, and she has a child because of desires intervention and her entire life is characterized by this unwanted intrusion of sleep you know this is true but maybe she reclaims a little agency at the end when she chooses to give her death as a gift so that rose can live yeah that's true yeah she definitely gets she definitely gets agency but it still has the sort of like the sort of symmetry to it that implies the hand of of destiny yeah and if you talk about who is manipulated and who is manipulating, Morpheus certainly gives the view throughout this story that he is doing his duty. He is doing what he has to, and he is not the determinator of his role. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. In our next Sandman episode, we venture into Dream Country, 
But first, join us in two weeks when John Constantine learns the meaning of Better the Devil You Know and spends a day on the beach. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a lot more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us to ask questions or just chat about these comics, you can reach us at vertigize at gmail.com or send off a short thought at vertigize on Twitter. And as usual, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.